As one of my favorite professors says, all politics, like good seafood, is local. Ground Level is an exploration of the power and importance of local government through interviews with various public officials, political junkies, and civic-minded Americans. I hope Ground Level inspires and educates fellow Democrats that we cannot ignore state and local government if we want to build and sustain political power for generations to come. Welcome to Ground Level. Welcome back to Ground Level. I'm Henry Schultz, your host, and today's episode continues with the theme of New York politics. I have the pleasure of interviewing brother-sister duo, Tunisia and Kahir Morrison. Tunisia is the chief of staff for New York State Assembly member Alicia Heidman, which is the Jamaica Queens area, and the co-founder of the nonprofit Voice. Voice aims to positively impact young people in communities of color through arts, education, entrepreneurship, civic engagement, and technology. Kair is an associate at the law firm Skadden, where he works on mergers and acquisitions. He received his JD from Howard University and previously worked as a deputy campaign manager for New York State Senator Leroy Comrie. He is also a co-founder of Voice. Their family has a deep history in activism and American politics. Welcome to Ground Level. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So, uh, let's start with maybe some background on your, your family. How did growing up in a family of public servants and activists shape you? Um, I think it, it definitely helps to shape your, your worldview. I think when I was growing up, and, and Tanisha can add to this, but I don't think we were that engaged uh, in the beginning of our lives until we sort of understood what that, that meant. Um, so our grandfather was uh, chief of staff to Malcolm X, um, and we didn't, you know, we, we knew this history, but didn't really have a chance to dive into it until later in life, until you sort of fully understood what that meant. Um, and our grandmother who, you know, wasn't involved in politics, but she, uh, started a school. Um, it was one of the longest run privately owned black schools in Brooklyn. And, you know, that was political in itself because, she started it uh, after homeschooling her kids, and and people started seeing how uh, you know articulate and uh, well mannered her children were. So they asked her to homeschool their kids, and eventually started a school. And the board of ed sued, um, but then the court found that uh, she was teaching kids above the level that the board of ed was, and it was like a mistrust of the public school system. Um, and then sort of fast forward to our teenage years, our uncle ran for office in Brooklyn uh, for state assembly and then was chair of the Black, Latino, and Asian Caucus of elected officials. He since out of politics, but that definitely sort of shaped how we got active and, and engaged in issues on the, you know, the micro level of just our everyday lives in the macro level of us uh, really, really starting to see the world. Yeah, I would add that um, I agree that I don't think that uh, just like civic engagement and activism was shoved in our face, but I feel like we were always just adjacent to it. The school that my grandmother um, founded and owned really taught us just like a cultural consciousness of our mm. our black world right just being black um in america um but everything she did like Kair said was so politically adjacent she always got 
um, some type of political recognition for it. Um, I think like some of my earliest memories are reading for the Reverend Al Sharpton. Um, we've always had um, elected officials visit our schools. Um, you know, Assembly Member Walter Mosley actually of Brooklyn was probably one of the first elected officials to recognize our grandmother. Um, and yeah, so it wasn't like it was this is what it is and this is what the family business is, but it kind of was, um, you know, this is where, this is kind of how we stand. This is the, the way that we walk in the world. Um, and I think it just kind of rubbed off on all of us. That's so cool. And did you, um, did you both grow up in Brooklyn or where in New York? We always were very Brooklyn adjacent because our grandmother lived there. Um, my grandmother literally lived maybe a block away from uh, one of her locations. Um, <laughs> then our uncle went and ran in that same district. So like our, from maybe what pre-K to eighth grade, our lives were very heavily in Brooklyn. And then on the weekends, we would be in um, South of Jamaica, Queens, doing extracurricular wow. activities like dance school, tennis, basketball, little league, tap, um, stuff like that. And then all went to high school, at least myself and my old, my oldest sister yeah. went to high school in Queens. At yeah, and I went to high school in Manhattan. When I, t- I went to the high school of fashion industries, just trying to get out of the zone school area. <laughs> awesome. And um, I think, is there a... As as you were growing up, is there was there like a like a singular moment that helped define your current political and civic engagement, or was it kind of just a combination of all being surrounded by this culture? I, I think Kaya and I both have singular moments. Um, I think my singular moment was I was twelve when I started high school. Um, when I went to the high school of fashion industries, and um, I was also the youngest to ever be accepted into this woman-led nonprofit organization um, called Sadie Nash Leadership Project. Um, and through being in that organization and being so young, they gave me a lot of autonomy to just be the best person I wanted to be in the world, which a lot of, at that time, I didn't realize was advocacy and like leadership and organizing the other young women around me. Um, so they uh, gave me the autonomy to lead a protest in front of Teen Vogue to request wow. to the uh, CEO of Teen Vogue that um, the magazine start looking more color. Um, at that time, the magazine was very white, um, and all of the teenagers that we would emulate in those magazines were. Um, but the organization I was in was full of amazing, colorful women um, and diverse women. So we led a protest there, and I think that was the first time I realized after getting a hundred signatures outside of Teen Vogue that oh. I can do this. Like I don't think I can. Or, I, like I, I, I can talk. Like I have a voice, and I should be using it um, more often. Yeah, and mine, I think, similarly was in high school. Um, I don't even remember how it sort of came about, but I got invited to a a group called the Urban Youth Collaborative, where they were sort of organizing around student metro cards, which like people from not from New York. Uh, if you're in high school or middle school, you get these free Metro cards that, you know, gives you rides to and from home. Um, and over 600,000 students use it in the state that year. Uh, and the MTA said they're going to cut that program. Um, so we organized a group of schools in, in New York and organized a citywide school walkout of the schools over the Metro cards. We were the first student group to meet with the chair of the MTA at the time, Jay Walder, um, and convinced the MTA board to stop their vote uh, when we protested them. Um, we met with 
you know, all the stakeholders. But that was sort of like the the first sort of spark in it. And then eventually through that group, well, we won and we got the, the MetroCard program uh, continued to be funding. It's still being funded till today. Um, but then I got into, involved in a group with the Urban Youth Collaborative that was doing um, criminal justice reform around youth and the juvenile justice system. And we sort of created a comic book that explained the juvenile justice system at the time, like, you know, who the stakeholders are, what to expect when you get to court. And then from there, it kind of just like, this was my thing. It was like, oh, okay, like Tanisha said, I can do this. Um, and then it kind of flowed naturally from there. Like People would reach out to us to speak at a protest. I remember one time I got asked to speak at a protest for um, around the MetroCard issue was the station agents were being laid off in the MTA. So the union president, and this was like before de Blasio was mayor, mm-hmm. um, he was public advocate at the time. They invited me to speak at a protest with the chair, the, the union president, the, what is it? Uh, the ATF the, mm-hmm. or whatever the MTA union transit union is. And I was just like, okay, but I was 16, 17 years old at the time. Yeah. And, um, former city councilwoman Tish James, now our New York state attorney general, one of the big supporters of the Metro card issue. She was right um, side by side with you as well on that. Yeah. Yeah, She's killing it now. (laughs) She's so awesome. She really Um, is. And yeah, so I, so for the past couple of episodes, um, I posted some really interesting people, uh, in the New York political scene, and you've both worked in New York politics. Uh, Tunisia at the Assembly Member Heinemann's office, and Kair with the State Senator Comrie. Um, and how how were those experiences? And Kair, do you plan on re-entering New York politics? Um, I think I I never left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's it's interesting because like people ask me that all the time. I think to to start the way I got involved in Comrie's campaign was interesting. So Comrie was a former city council member, pretty powerful council member, and he was running against Malcolm Smith, who years ago got indicted for political corruption. But this was, uh, I guess, 2014. And I had, you know, been involved in organizing stuff. I met Comrie and he said, do you want to work on my campaign? Um, And he didn't follow up with me. Um, and then eventually I bumped into him and said, you know, I, you said you wanted me to work on your campaign. I'm going to work on your campaign. <laughs> and um, it was, a, so he, I got invited to the first meeting. It was only like three of us. So sort of by default, I, I became the deputy campaign manager and we were running against Malcolm Smith, who the first black majority leader of the Senate, a uh, pretty popular guy, even though he had been indicted. So we weren't sure how that was going to go, but we won with, 70% of the vote. Um, and then eventually I worked for him for about a year before law school. Um, and Alicia, who now Tanisha works uh, for as chief of staff for, she had just, right before I went to law school, like that August, uh, she had ran for the assembly and I was her her deputy campaign manager as well. Um, and for her Queensborough president. And, and when she ran recently for Queensborough president. So like when I, when people say, are you getting back into politics? Like if you, <laughs> if you know me, I may not, that may not be my full-time job, but uh, I'm constantly still um, thinking about it, still talking to people about it. 
um, and involved when I can be like this year, there's a lot of city council races, like, um, you know, once you're in it, it's kind of hard to, Ooh, <laughs> to get 2021, out. 2021, I am not we'll prepared. Be <laughs> I am not prepared for 2021 um, at all. Um, so I guess on my end, uh, so politics did not start with Alicia's office. Um, I lobbied uh, city, state, and federal government for, what, maybe around six years-ish. Um and uh, actually, full circle, when I was lobbying, that's when I first met Alicia. Um, uh, she came to the firm I was working at. We sat down, gave her a, a bunch of the little gems I knew about uh, District 29 in Queens and just kind of, you know, trying to, being, uh, trying to bring the campaign space into the 21st century, into this millennial tech world that exists um that just for some reason did not exist like that you know old school knock doors uh it was missing just a whole generation of people um so i was helpful there she offered me a job totally couldn't afford me um and <laughs> uh, we just kind of tabled that conversation for a while um and then uh i think maybe kair no we were always speaking but something happened where she was like i want to do this i want to run was helping her with that and then she put it back on the table like so are you going to be my chief of staff now oh yeah she she was running for queensborough president last year that that uh in i guess that was last november yeah and she asked me like hey are you free to run my campaign and i was kind of like uh i you know i'm a full-time lawyer and (laughs) can't but uh i was like you know, if you get the 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 best thing or the next best thing. Oh, <laughs> shut up! Is, is, is Tanisha? Um, you know, I could. You know, you have my ear um, to for advice, and but Tanisha is sort of uh, more equipped to to do this now. And um, so, yeah, that that sort of happened. We sort of led the the beginning of the race, and then um, eventually she dropped out for many, 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 many Queens politics political reasons. Um, which we may or may not agree with, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think it definitely boosted her, her profile enormously, um, over like a short, very short period of time. Like she was not unknown. She was, she was virtually unknown in the assembly, um, before, before she ran for borough president. And, yeah. Now she's like a citywide, Queenswide, New York statewide known elected official. Um, that got her a lot of visibility. That's awesome. And Tunisia, do you go up to Albany or do you stay like, it's like, what's your kind of schedule? Yeah. So pre COVID, um, cause you know, session, New York state legislative session is January to June. I was, um, in Albany almost every week or every other week, just trying to balance chiefing in Albany and chiefing in Queens. Um, mm-hmm. and then COVID happened and I said, y'all gonna have to miss me with them sessions up there. <laughs> <laughs> If I could be I could be helpful virtual. Who you need me to reach out to? Um, no, but uh, we actually have sessions in a few, maybe in a few weeks, possibly depending on the speaker. So I'll be back. But yeah, during COVID, uh, I was just like, yeah, you got that up there. Our legislative director lives up there, so I was like, you can handle this, right? You you don't need me physically. I was a little scared, um, but yeah, for the most part, I would I try to be in Albany all the time. If this was a COVID-free world, I would have been up there and session would be done. Um, but I would have been up there um, every other week balancing here and there. 
That's so cool. Um, Kair, what drew you to law? Um, I so it was. I think it's like interesting. I don't think we have uh, we don't have any like immediate family who are attorneys or anything like that. Um, but I sort of found like the 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 smartest people in the room often were attorneys or the people who you know saw things from the the most critical lens were attorneys. Um, and it was kind of like, what's next? I think politics is interesting, but, um, what makes you more adaptable in politics and outside of politics? And I, I also didn't want my world to be a hundred percent politics. You also have to remember politics is half legislation. It's yeah. still a whole legislature. So, yeah. So I think I, 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 it was, it would make me at least in the beginning better equipped to, um, you know, run for office to, to help someone in office and, you know all those things. Awesome. And uh, Tunisia, tell us more about your, or actually both of you with Voice, um, the nonprofit and both of your visions on how to engage young people of color in the arts and, and civically. Yeah. So um, Voice is a V-O-Y-C-E. It stands for the Voice of Youth Changes Everything. Um, and we, Kair, myself, and my sister, um, we decided at some random point, we were like, listen, we're doing a lot. I feel like we're a little bit in high demand. Everybody's asking us to do all these things. Also, we saw a need, you know, we just, we felt like we had something to give. We all at that point had really strong relationships in and out of uh, government and, you know, in a lot of different communities because of just how adjacent we were to so many, right? I was, we grew up in Brooklyn, then I started, my firm was located in downtown Brooklyn, right? Then at some point, you know, I was working in Queens, or Kaya was like working in Manhattan, and we were getting all these different relationships in different boroughs, and we were like, yo, like, we're so young. We were just so, we were like, Kaya was probably not even 20 yet. I was probably 21, Um, and we were just like, we, we need to find a way to utilize these things at our, our fingertips. And most importantly, we it got to a point where we started hating be the, being the only people in the room who understood the government um, with our just like our generation. It, it was just us, you know. Um, I mean, to this day, I, I can't tell you how many people text me screenshots of their ballot. Um, it's ridiculous, <laughs> um, which is fine. I, I have no problem helping. Um, but, you know, just understanding the functionality of government um, and just like, who's running and who's on the ballot and all those things. Um, and then also just spaces, right? Uh, Kaya and I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, where there was not always spaces for us, right? Like not centers for us to do things. And for some reason, our family and my mom always found a way to make sure we were in things. So we wanted to give that to the world as well. Um, so we decided to start a nonprofit. We thought that was the best lens to do it in. Um, and then just start creating programming um, through those things that we thought were most critical for us, you know, our, our generation and the generation younger than us, which obviously is arts and education, entrepreneurship, and specifically civic engagement, right? Um, and real and technology and figuring out how we how we pipeline those things. So we began with using our elected official relationships to find spaces. Have uh, either we were paying for them or getting the spaces sponsored for the most part, um, whatever, no, no matter where we were, if it was going to be a high rise in downtown Brooklyn, a rooftop in um, Times Square, we just started like, you know, because dreaming starts with seeing, let's start just like creating really dope events around the, the city that like incorporate all of these things. Maybe it's an art gallery, maybe it's a town hall um, on, you know, police brutality or whatever it might be. Um, 
what else have we done? Maybe it's a networking mixer where your local elected officials are there. And what we found was that like friends would come up to us like, that guy's my neighbor. And I'm like, that's your congressman, right? <laughs> like, or like that. Wow, like I see that guy at Starbucks, and I'm like, that's your city council person, you know? And like finding just cool ways to bridge that gap, which we found was really cool, really impactful. People now have a face to the name, and people now are like engaging uh, government in a different way. Um, so yeah, it was it's it was pretty dope. Um, we're still doing a lot of that work. We're still um, kind of rebranding now that we've grown a lot in our individual lives and uh, can also find out more unique spaces for young people. Um, but it's really all about providing programming and space and intentional space for those who don't usually have it, who um, want the space and just don't really know how to uh, activate it and create it. Yeah, and I'll just add quickly that like I think when you're dealing with younger people, especially in when it comes to civic engagement, the world right now, it's like people think the way you engage young people in politics or you, you yell at them and tell them, why aren't you voting? Or okay. you yell at them and say, why don't you know X, Y, Z, where, you know, you'll you'll completely have a shutdown and, and that's how you get disengagement in my okay. in my eyes. Sure. The way you engage people is engage them where they are first. So if that's the art world, you throw an art gallery for them. If that's the entrepreneurial world, you help them figure out how to start a business. And then you say, hey, also, we got this event about police brutality, if you're interested. Also, we're doing some voter registration this week so so that people aren't bored, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, we did that actually with high school students as well. Um, I've come to this space where I now believe, and I'm certain in theory, uh, that our high school students are the most underserved in this city and in this state. And I think it's because of the age range, right? Like things that Kair and I were equipped with, I really, it didn't take me, it took me to college to realize you're not an average high school student. Like you didn't have the average high school experience. Like you just did not, you were not normal in a lot of ways. And when I realized that, and then going to go to high schools and speak to young people, I realized that Kair and I, like we just, our family just, that advocacy, that speaking up for yourself, that having a mom that I can call right now and say my teacher's pissing me <laughs> off and then the school get a call and then by the I'm in my classroom and then the teacher gets the call and then the teacher stop messing with me. That's not a regular high school experience, yeah. right? So I realized that raising your voice, right, V-O-Y-C-E, back to that, like raising your voice was so important and having people who supported you in raising your voice was even more important. Um, so we started finding unique ways to engage high school students, whether it be parties, like we've thrown parties for them where we've gotten like their favorite rapper out or, you know, just things that they like, but then also do workshops at that, right? So like before you can drop your, your you know, coat and get on the dance floor, engage in this workshop about this thing really quick, you know what I mean? And then you can go do those things. And then we're going to give you some free stuff when you leave, as long as we can engage with you later. So just like relativity and meeting young people where they are specifically in high school was also important to us um and that's something that we're continuing to build right now that's brilliant and finding more ways wow, to do that that's so cool that's so smart and brilliant i just think that's like the approach to to um increasing civic engagement that's like i've never thought about that so holistically i think that's just such a brilliant idea it's amazing um Thank and you. related to, to your family's advocacy could you give our listeners kind of a brief history lesson about your grandfather um, and just your family but I think it's a really incredible fascinating 
part about your grandfather and his uh, relationship with Malcolm X. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, for people who don't know, Malcolm X was, um, I guess you call him just an activist, but an organizer. Um, but he, a part of that, and if you look at sort of black American history, um, there was like a, a huge group of people and, you know, it's a, it's a debatable topic, um, now, but, uh, who joined the Nation of Islam, and the Nation of Islam was run by this guy, Elijah Muhammad, um, and it was sort of like a lifestyle for a lot of people. It was it was disciplined, it was militant, it was, um, you know, organized, and, and, you know, the opposite of that, juxtaposing that, was, was sort of the um, Southern Christian leadership movement with, with Martin Luther King. Um, a lot of people who joined the Nation were some some uh, ex-cons and found Islam in, in jail or, yeah. or found Elijah Muhammad. Um, and that, you know, there weren't a lot of groups like that at the time. So I could understand why a lot of people sort of joined that. And my grandfather, funny enough, was sort of not with the Nation of Islam. <laughs> like he, he actually did not, uh, I don't think he had religion that much until probably his later life. Yeah. But he said uh, he's a very like smart guy, but he said he one day just went down to to uh, I guess it was Moss Number Seven where Malcolm no, X. No, he went down to One Twenty Fifth because oh. Grandpa helped create Moss Number Seven. Yeah, One Twenty Fifth Street where Malcolm X was, and he sort of wanted to debate Malcolm X, but uh, he said he found that Malcolm was, you know, in a cocky way, he's like some, someone who actually matched him. Yeah. Um, it made sense, so yeah. then he joined the nation. Uh, fast forward when Malcolm left the nation because of threats uh, from Elijah Muhammad. It, it, for people who don't know the history, uh, when JFK died, um, Elijah Muhammad, basically the, the head of the Nation of Islam, told told everybody, all the, the ministers, don't say anything because they didn't want it to negatively impact their movement. Like JFK was a beloved uh, president, so the nation coming out saying something bad about him after his death didn't look good for them. Malcolm didn't listen to that. And um, the famous statement that came out of that was the chickens are coming home to roost, um, which you can, you know, kind of get, uh, figure out the meaning of that. But so he sort of, a lot of people thought also Malcolm was getting a lot more attention um, because he was like the face at at the time. Malcolm also went to Mecca and came back and sort of changed his message of by any means. It was still sort of by any means, but he realized he went to Mecca and he was praying with not just black Muslims, but white Muslims and people from across the world. And sort of that changed him. Uh, And eventually he left the nation and my grandfather left with him um, and started an organization. um, Organization of Afro-American Unity. And, uh, and then my grandfather was there when he, the day Malcolm died at the Audubon Ballroom. Um, Translated a lot of his conversations with world leaders. And and uh, was there when he, you know, met Che Guevara and all those those people and sort of <laughs> disappeared after Malcolm died because of, of fear that he was sort of next on the hit list. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that. He, got, he very much believed he was next on the oh. hit list. Um, and just to kind of add to what Kair said. Uh, our grandfather was known as one of the uh, 
top 10 percentile geniuses in the country by the FBI for a while. Um, even, you know, just before that, he, he went to Lincoln University. He was a smart man, spoke about seven, eight languages. Oh um, and uh, I, we didn't know this till A veteran. Yeah, veteran. Korean War. Yep. Like, we didn't know a lot of, you know, his impact on uh, the movement and specifically the civil rights movement um, until, like Kyrie said earlier, we got much older and he explained to us the famous moment when Martin and Malcolm finally met each met other each other, yeah. that he uh, put together. And, you know, there's a famous photo of him in the Library of Congress between Martin and Malcolm. Um, and the story really is, you know, him, you know, hearing everything, him seeing things on the news, him seeing how the FBI and the media tried to pit them wow. against each other. I mean, he just kind of grabbed both of their hands while like, grow up. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in funny thing is they had never met at that point. Yeah. Uh, Ma- Martin and Malcolm. So he literally, he, tell, he said, Martin, Malcolm said to him, um, he never met him. And, so my grandfather just literally grabbed their hands and put them together. Wow. That's I definitely know that uh, photo too. That's incredible. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like the 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 photo when they first met. Yeah. Um, and and it's interesting because later in life, like when I went to law school, I wrote uh, a law review article, sort of calling for expanded um, Fourth Amendment protections for activists. Um, and part of that, I use my grandfather's. FBI papers, um, which are now public, where you can see the FBI literally following this man or trying to. It's it's funny. It's funnier because they couldn't find him. Like, the name changes. Yeah, you literally would see the file say, uh, you know, location unknown, armed and dangerous, or whatever they were saying about him at the time. But this was like a part of the FBI's COINTEL program where they literally infiltrated. Um, activist groups uh, without warrants, without probable cause, and you know would send fake letters to Martin's wife or Malcolm's wife and say he's cheating on you. Um, it, it's it's crazy that you know still to this day it happens in the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's comp- like when you see protests and you're seeing someone breaking a glass and instigating, it's crazy that it isn't illegal for. Uh, you know, law enforcement to do that or to to sit in the meetings, um, like that your political affiliations aren't protected by the Fourth Amendment or that um, you need some type of probable cause that this group is actually causing violence for you to surveil um, them. Wow. Yeah, I, I want to transition to the current uh, time we're in now, the struggle against police brutality, racial injustice. Um, I think I want to start um, with Kair about, I, th- I saw a post on LinkedIn, your LinkedIn about investing in people of color who are interested in law uh, and through summer internships and other programs. And what came to mind for me, um, like it's the collective pack, which they try to build black political power on the local state and federal level. But I'm yeah. curious about your vision about like the field of law and specifically how to get more diverse DAs and kind of public um, public interest law, or d- just yeah, d- DAs who have control over uh, public safety, law enforcement, etc. Yeah, I think um, what's often forgotten in the conversation of criminal justice reform and stuff like that is that DAs have enormous power. Like you get arrested today, it's up to a district attorney to decide whether they're going forward with the charges. Um, no one can get past a district attorney. 
Like maybe a judge steps in, but likely they won't because they will go with, you know, a district attorney's recommendation and district attorneys more often than not are people who were in, um, you know, a district attorney's office and then got elected. Um, and they're often not people of color. They're not people who, uh, are adjacent to the criminal justice system, the other side of the criminal justice system, where they're trying to help reform people and rehabilitate people versus just incarcerate people. Um, so the field of law already, I think, I, I read a statistic that's it's crazy. It's like five percent are people of like African Americans, um, which is ridiculous. I went to Howard, which obviously was the opposite of that, where I was blessed to go to a school and know over just in my class alone, over 140 attorneys across the country who are people of color. Um, you, I, my friends who went to Harvard, Yale, you name it, don't have that experience. So I probably will know a lot of people who run for office who are black and run for district attorneys and all that, or are close enough to those networks at this point. But I think there needs to be a, uh, like a, a, and if it's not one that exists already, I know, um, they're PACs that focus on um, local races, but real, real PACs that are focusing on district attorneys across the country. Because especially now when you see what's happening with policing, it's in, in Minnesota, they had to give the case for George Floyd to the attorney general just because the district attorney, the local district attorney, was um, sort of not willing to prosecute. Um, and... I think when we think about the criminal justice system, it has to have be a fluid conversation on um, rehabilitation and reform that is not being had by most district attorneys in the country. So I like encourage more black people to become attorneys, encourage them to do, you know, all types of things, corporate law and whatnot, but um, also to really, really focus on, on the ones who are really interested in public, serving in public service with their legal degree to, to run for district attorneys. That's yeah, that's really insightful. And, um, Tunisia, I want to, or actually both of you for, um, about the role of nonprofits. Let me start with Tunisia. Um, yeah, about the role of NGOs, um, in addressing, uh, racial inequality and in particular, like my, my last guest, um, he's a legislative director for, uh, Ben Kalos, uh, and he was talking about a city council member, Ben Kalos, and he was talking about the need to invest more in the like SYEP, like summer youth program, um, employment program. And I think he said there were some cuts to it. Uh, but yeah, kind of your, your vision about how the nonprofit side and their role in addressing these inequities. Um, first and foremost, I think that nonprofit organizations of color who are owned and ran by people of color, specifically Black people, need to get more opportunities for grant opportunities and money opportunities. Um, too often, nonprofit organizations that are ran by white people who are going into Black communities to help, quote unquote, serve, get all the money. They get all of it. They get all the grant opportunities. For some reason, the save me mentality helps get the dough when there are organizations within the communities that are still just reaching for the scraps. Um, so I will start there and say that if there was a pipeline in a way to uh, 
now start looking into boards, uh, looking into organizations that are nonprofit organizations, grassroots organizations that are quote unquote doing the work and see what their makeup is before they get grant money. I think that is just like one way to increase the pipeline, right? Because a lot, a lot, like I can name maybe 10 organizations off the back of my head right now who are working on gun violence and crisis management, who are going into these schools um, when they were open, right? And doing this work after school and between the budget of the DOE um, and their budgets of whoever decides to give them some money, maybe it is a city council member like the amazing Ben Kalos. They're not, they're getting what, $3,000 a year for operation costs? You know what I mean? Um, So I, I think that just even starting there, I think that there needs to be a way that grassroots organizations doing the work within their communities who can show that they are living in zip code um, or the organizations are based in zip code could get better opportunities for money. Right. And then I don't think that we, this conversation around SYEP would it be so grand if that money was really returning and recycling within those communities. And that's really an issue. Um, none of that money really recycles. The impact might recycle within the the young people there, right? Or the people in which the nonprofit is serving, but the, the dollars are never recycling back into those communities. And that's a true disservice. Um, regarding SYEP, yeah, those cuts are crazy. I, re- I remember actually one of my first jobs were through wow, SYEP. Yeah. Um, where I was a counselor at a, a elementary school within my community, right? And that's one thing that SYP does very well is place people where they're at. Um, and you know, if they want to go abroad, that then that's great. But those cuts really did a disservice to young people across the city who uh, who need that money, specifically the underserved and homeless who got you know uh, job opportunities through SYP. Um, but I also think you know we kind of talked about this earlier. Uh, the uh, high school experience, right? Those those young people. Uh, I'm trying to find a way right now, and actually, I'm working. I've been researching this a lot lately on how to start um, building up the businesses within communities um, to find ways to increase the pipeline to job opportunities and um, and things like that. Um, because I think that's something also that's missing within that, right? Like if the Dunkin' Donuts, the um, what is it? Uh, the beef patty shop, right? The Walgreens or the Rite Aid, the, the 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 corner store are all like pillars of where these young people go and do things. Why can't we find ways to give them job opportunities in that? Um, so that's just like one side of it all. Um, but you know, with the five hundred one c three status, it's really really tough to want to engage in advocacy without uh towing the line of government. I mean, really finding that 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 line. I, I see a lot of people cross it, and I'm always just like, ah, what? <laughs> oh my god! Like, you know, yeah. be careful um, because you really need to find unique ways to be able to advocate and keep people civically engaged without engrossing yourself in the day to day of politics, like endorsing, right? And I've seen a few nonprofit organizations make that mistake. Um, you know, since March. Um, and, you know, I'm always trying to reach out and just say, FYI, like, I don't, you know, you, you have to be really, really careful about these things. Um, but I do think that there are unique ways to do it. I think there there is unique ways to also get people out um, and, you know, rallying and, and doing things. Um, it's just mainly about understanding the impact of that status. I don't, I don't think that we talk about that enough, specifically in Black communities. Um, it's easy to get the 501c3 status, but it's harder to keep it um, especially when you're, you know, towing the line of government. Does our organization like to do advocacy work and civic engagement work? Of course, but we try to stay away from politics as much as possible. 
Yeah, um, and I'll say, you know, government seems to lack creativity these days. Like, yeah. the SYEP program is very creative. Like, the idea that um, the government is funding uh, internships and summer youth programs so that small businesses and nonprofits and the courts or wherever you're working doesn't have to put the money up themselves gives opportunities to youth. But we have that what that program is maybe 10 plus years old. Mm -hmm. And we haven't said let's let's expand this or figure out new ways to to fund this program. Um, So I think that's like step one, um, like being more creative about how you go about things. Two is oftentimes in communities of color, you find uh, government will say we can't find the we can't find a nonprofit who, you know, is set up in a way that uh, we can give the money to because they don't have a board and all these other things. So I think that's for government um, and other organizations to come in and say, this is how you set up a nonprofit. This is how you uh, create a board. This is how you should hold your meetings and uh, set up a bank account that's separate from you. Like those types of accountability things that uh, often aren't taught or we don't have the resources to figure out. And then um, three is, uh, the government being creative about policy. Like I, you know, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on the law, but why can't the government say like they do all the time, like create a nonprofit themselves and put a board of stakeholders that they know who are in those neighborhoods who can manage a organization to funnel the money through. Um, So I think just being creative on those types of things is like a simple way to funnel dollars to communities of color and to the programs we need. So yes, it SYEP is one step, but if we're really fighting racial inequity and in, in, in fighting for racial justice, it's equity and funding. Um, it's not just summer youth for job. Like that's like I think Joe Biden made a gaffe recently about you know black people being sort of homogenous really on on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, on policy, but I think a lot of white liberals often are agree with that. Like some of the lefties of the lefties <laughs> often step up and agree with that, thinking that black issues and black racial justice just means we want uh, to reform the police department. No, that's a start. But we, when we talk about institutional racism, we mean uh, why I, I sit on a board of a park in my neighborhood that. Uh, constantly gets no funding, but all the the other parks that are public, privately owned in, in white neighborhoods are, are very well funded, not just uh, from the government. So we're talking about so many layers of institutional racism and yeah. so many institutions. The police department is just happens just to be one of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're not, we're not, you know, homogenous in, and black people are different like my black the black neighborhood of south jamaica queens is a completely different neighborhood than central brooklyn or where harlem. you have or harlem where you have different com, different types of black people mm-hmm. <laughs> they may i may not be dealing with uh immigration issues in my neighborhood because a lot of us you know came from the south and have been here since slavery but the fight of my haitian and jamaican and trinidadian brothers who are living in Brooklyn who may have come here illegally or were born here just as as uh 
someone who came from Mexico, it's happening in our neighborhood too. So mm-hmm. it's like those, those issues, we have so many different issues. Um, and it's not just one. And we all don't agree on those, on, yeah. on those issues as well. I'll just add lastly, like just reimagining what institutional support looks mm-hmm. like um, in addressing racial inequity, because uh, a lot of these uh, organizations, specifically when we talk about government, let's even say our banks, they love doing that, that little DNI, you know, like that little, yeah. oh, oh we, we touched a high school. Like we, we hired a diversity council. Right. Like, like the, the little, the little things. I think like we can really just imagine what, reimagine what that word support looks like. Support doesn't always have to be monetary. Like sometimes it is using your black bankers to come mm-hmm. into a black neighborhood, you know, to discuss like their road to their careers. Right. Like there's just so many different ways to support that always doesn't have to come back to, we gave this org $10,000. What else you want from me? A, uh, a bank in the neighborhood to get rid of the check, check cashing plays, you know, mm-hmm. right. like to get rid of payday loans and those types of things, like a bank. (laughs) We could could start by, you know, putting banks in historically redlined uh, communities because they're still redlined. It's just now called gentrification. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What comes to in terms of institutional support, I saw, I think it was an article maybe a year ago about um, Harlem Harlem Capital, like the the VC. Yeah. But like that, I feel like just generally the, I wish like it, this is such a strategic um, and more holistic and bigger view um, on institutional racism. And I wish like a lot of like kids who are quote unquote liberal at my college, very, it's, and they're mostly white. They post about police brutality and, and um, uh, abolishing the police. But I feel like, um, like, how do you get this? You're both your views on how you, rethink support and these different layers of institutional racism like out there like I, I think it is out there but like I think maybe the as you said like the very liberal um kids my age or our age are not um like thinking about this in a more like strategic way I don't know I think that's I just never thought about what you just said I think it's very smart I think it's yeah, I think it's Thanks, it's exactly what you just said. Like the VC fund, like a lot of people don't know that this it's it's an anomaly that this this venture capitalist firm owned by run by black people, young black people started. Uh, and if you look at any other VC fund, like black black people can't get angel investors mm-hmm. and all this other stuff, yeah. you know, um, and people to sort of back them with money. So it's like one put like people putting their money where their mouth is liberals uh, and banks and, you know, you name it. Um, And I think the way you get that message out there is to me, unfortunately, I think, and I'm a Democrat, I'm a, you know, voting for Joe Biden, I'm a liberal. um, But oftentimes the people we put in office, and I'll say this for the black community are people who don't have skills outside of politics. So you asked me why I went to law school, because I found most people who worked for elected officials, um, and even Tanisha's unique, like the fact that she's a chief of staff and didn't work for 12 years for an elected official, like this is actually her first job for an elected official. Yeah, they can't stand it. (laughs) It's unique. She thinks out of the box, like, and we need more out of the box elected officials and who, staff and staff who have experience outside of 
I was a community organizer. I think that's a great skill to have. Well, I interned in the office and worked my way all the way up to chief. Uh, but that means you own, this is all you know, and you're so used to doing things a certain way that when yeah. someone comes in and says, hey, this is different, like the fact that we don't have more black elected officials now talking about the Green New Deal when uh, communities of color were hit the worst, especially in New York by Sandy, like that our elected officials in the Rockaways haven't like loudly supported for that, that on a state level or a city level. It, it's crazy. Um, Just even when you, being progressive as the, black people, the, you are what progressive is. Yeah. The fact that we're talking about public, you know, housing and public housing is often, uh, hyper ghettos and just, you know, commun- in communities of color. And no one said, how about we do mixed income housing? How about we figure that one out? How about we change the AMI now that COVID happened and all the gentrifiers and transplants went home? Yeah. How about we really actually fund this uh, housing program because we could probably actually cure homelessness, like things that are actually tangible and easy, <laughs> relatively easy to do, like simple math equations. <laughs> like, it's like, they don't think of it because yeah. we keep electing people who are not uh, out of the box thinkers because all they know is politics. They sit in a seat for 40 years and then they, they leave and then they leave the community in shambles. Yeah. I'll add that uh, to your question, Henry. First of all, thank you. Uh, Cause <laughs> I, when it, when Kai and I are going back and forth about things, like it doesn't sound unique, but it's good to hear yeah. that we're, yeah. oh we're out of the box. No, it's, it's brilliant. I think that's what it is. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would add that one thing that has been on my mind recently, um, listening to people like Ella Baker and R.G. Lord and Toni Morrison, um, is just the word radical change. Um, and being radical doesn't mean um, being against, right, or just like totally like wrong and, and uh, uh, aggravated and, you know, um, frustrated. It really means uh, just doing things that are different. Um, and I think to Kair's point, if we just started um, allowing each other to go across the aisle and like discuss these things and like reach out to our friends and start like talking about these things a little bit more radical change is you going into whatever space you're in and talking about these things. Cause that's really what's not happening. Right. Like they're just not happening, um, at tables, social cards are great. Putting these things on the, the internet are great. Um, but I think radical change to Kair's point really needs to start and where they can see it. That event I told you that I did with the high school students where, you know, they did this workshop and then shake their butts after was so radical in our community. People were just like, what? An elected official sponsored this? <laughs> like, you were okay with like hot girl summer, you know, playing in the background. And like, yes, because like we, that's, you know, those songs are for us and we understand that we can, we can chaperone the party, but we knew that they left not only with some new knowledge um, and some new clothes and some new electronics, but like a whole experience um, that they, that they can take with them forever. So like being just radical about your thinking and it has to start with yourself. You have to be able to want to unlearn and relearn things. Um, and really like to Kyer's point, putting, people and staff and government that are unique to government. Like I don't want, if I ever ran for office, my whole team of people just to have worked in government, right? My comms person, I wouldn't have cared if they ever worked in government. You know, I would really just want to mold them and let them be trained around the things around government because there are a lot of nuances. Um, But yeah, just like bringing people into this space that can start thinking about how things can be versus how things were Um, because politics will kind of try to keep you there forever. If they could. And all institutions need to learn it. Like when I get upset when law firms, like I, you know, I'm a corporate lawyer, law firms talk about diversity and like you 
you're you're working at one of the these big big law firms that are supposed to be problem solvers, but they they can't figure out like that they may need to hire people who didn't go to Harvard, Yale, or Columbia. And I'm yeah. I'm glad that my firm, you know, is a little bit more progressive in that sense, and uh, or that you know maybe we should go to Howard because that's where actual black lawyers are, mm-hmm. like uh, or maybe we shouldn't just hire people who come from great economic backgrounds. Cause now we have like a group of people who are thinking differently and those are like where problems are really solved. Um, and like last point on sort of the government creativity, it's like, I was even thinking earlier, like when COVID started and, and States are like, man, like we don't have funding. We need the federal government to fund these things. And then you realize on people, they don't have savings and people are relying so much. It's like, so excuse me, like, I was about to say fucking, but like, it's so weird to me that no one has, like, thought, like, why doesn't the state just create a savings plan uh, incentive package? Like, where, you know, we're always worried about Social Security failing. What if they just had an opt an opt-out system where you would have to opt out of this, where, you know, 2% of your check automatically went to a state, a state created bank that saves uh that's a savings plan for you the state uses that money like every other bank to invest in you know whatnot like a like a pension a 401k that the state creates this it seems like to me I'm like i don't know the 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 working of it but it seems like a relatively simple idea to put together i mean every every bill and every law <laughs> in this state and anywhere by the way in federal state city all starts with an idea mm-hmm. then bill drafting and there's a whole there's a whole process of where that idea can be fleshed out and see why and how it can happen and you talk about tax give them tax cuts like right. you're you you're just like a 401k you put this money in yeah. you're not taxed on that it's not money. a bad idea all you need to do is get it to the right and then official. in 30 years or another COVID, you can actually touch this money if you needed to. That's so awesome. I, I, I want to think about, um, I always think about how we can engage like with the, the next 50 and Zach Malamud, how to engage young people um, and supporting young candidates and diverse candidates, but also trying to build like a political talent type pipeline. But I didn't think about that idea of like, how about we build this pipeline for people who also can go into government but are not um strictly political like thinkers. So I think that's yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. Maybe to, to close it out, I asked this question to everyone. It's a I think complicated and tough question these days, but what does patriotism mean to both of you? Um that's a good question. Um so I think that obviously just looking at the word patriotism, you think love and support for your country. Um but I am a firm believer that your country is nothing without the people. Um, so patriotism to me is love and support of your country's people. Um, and, you know, finding unique ways to do that. I, I don't want that every time we love and support each other in a country, it's because of a, a natural disaster or a horrific accident, like, or, you know, uh, 9-11. Uh, you know, we always find ways to come together. And those are like the reels that you see, you know, BP with the, the goose and the the dove, you know, the they're the the dove soap and like look how great we are, you know, with this oil spill. I think um just finding, you know, and even just through Black Lives Matter movement to me is uh patriotism in so many ways. It's if you're, you know, allies of it, it's love and supporting um your your country's people as well. Yeah, and for me I think just to add on, I agree with that completely, but patriotism is honesty 
for the betterment of your country. So yeah. patriotism is owning up to racism, not mm. because you're not like shaming your country. You're mm. saying this evil existed and this is how we uh, come together and move forward. Uh, it's honesty in saying that, um, you know, the police aren't the best institutions in America right now. And that's not saying, you know, F the police or they're the worst people in the world. Um, one day I'll run for office and somebody will just take this clip. And <laughs> yeah, for sure. F the police. Scrub but, this, Henry. <laughs> but it, it's just saying this, this is a problem and this is how we fix it because this is how we fix the country and this is how we make our country better. Um, not not attacking one group of people or institutions it's reforming institutions and that reform is not a bad word it literally is just trying to improve something like being honest about a problem uh especially when it deals with the people in your country and trying to correct it um yeah for sure such good so good thank you so much um you both, this is such an amazing conversation. Thank you, Henry, yes. for having us. Yeah, I enjoyed. You got us, you know, going. Yeah, I know you did. 